New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Rhonda Hattie. She's an associate professor of marketing at Saeed Business School, Oxford University. She specializes in consumer psychology with an emphasis on sensory marketing and consumer interactions with new technology. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Years ago, my sister was working in Japan and her young children were really integrated into the culture. They went to Japanese nursery school and were bilingual English and Japanese speakers. And when they came back to the United States, one of their favorite toys was Anpanman, which for listeners who might not be aware of it, it was a very cute anthropomorphic character of a bean paste bread. And I just could not wrap my head around that. I And so when I saw your paper, I knew I had to interview you because you conducted a study on consumers and anthropomorphic products for the purpose of getting everyone on the same page. Can you define what anthropomorphism is? Sure. Yeah, it's quite a mouthful, but anthropomorphism refers to when we attribute human-like characteristics to non-human products or any object, any non-human object, really. And so it's it's not entirely uncommon to see this done pretty explicitly with things like a face on a package or a brand mascot that, that has a whole character and personality to represent a brand. But oftentimes we do this without the marketer even getting involved. We might see faces in a cloud or or think a, an, an object is, is cute in a human-like way, even though it's it's non-human. I see. So this is a, people look for faces. They bring faces to non-human objects. Marketers do take advantage about it. Uh, the product I mentioned was a food product. When you were studying it, what types of products did you look at? So a, a pretty wide range of products, everything from cosmetics to foods to electronic, electronics. So you, you see it in a pretty wide variety of, of categories. And again, this is in terms of marketers actually making those products look a little bit human-like. But then there are also a, a host of products that people anthropomorphize like their cars, where, where people will give them names and even caress the steering wheel and, and, and really treat it as if they had a relationship with these products. Right. And I've seen people put eyelashes on their VW bucks. I've seen that. It's so sort of strange. You mentioned in the paper that some product names like Walkman or Game Boy, the names themselves are anthropomorphic. For purposes of your research, would they have been included or not? Yes. So we did look at anthropomorphizing products through the naming of the product. And I think the the, the two examples are, are kind of classic examples of Japanese electronics that use anthropomorphic names, whether it be yeah, Game Boy, Walkman, which not to jump ahead, but sort of hints at that, the notion that there might be a cultural dimension here worth right. considering. Right. Well, and and the other thing, and you mentioned this brand mascot, are the talking M&Ms full-on anthropomorphized product, whereas the Geico Gecko is a mascot. 
Is that sort of if people are thinking about it, if it's the product, you eat the M&Ms and the M&Ms are wearing go-go boots versus the gecko, which is a gecko, which has been made human, but it's not like an insurance salesman. I, I don't know. How how does the, how do those two things, where, where are they in this spectrum of what we're talking about? I think in that case, we'd consider both of those examples of brand anthropomorphism okay. because it's not the actual product itself that has eyes or feet or legs that you're then putting in your mouth. And I mean, that exists too, which I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss. But in that case, it's the branding that is being used in communications and advertising, maybe packaging of, of, of the spokesperson being anthropomorphic. And the idea is to sort of help you as a consumer build a relationship and maybe liking for the brand as you would with, with another human being. Right. So before you conducted your research, what was what were can you sort of outline the existing beliefs around how cultural aspects influenced attitudes around consumer reaction to anthropomorphic products? So I, I think a lot of people looked at our overall tendency to anthropomorphize objects with kind of curiosity. And I think brands kind of took it for granted that it would be a good thing to, to allow people to establish a relationship with, with a brand by, by anthropomorphizing it. I think there is less work looking at anthropomorphic products. And I would chalk part of that, at least, up to the fact that it is more prevalent in certain societies than others and not super prevalent in, in, in Western societies where a lot of the kind of body of consumer research work is, is coming out. But but I, I do think at least anecdotally, and, and part of what inspired this project was real world experiences on my own travels and my co-authors' travels to East Asian countries and seeing that anthropomorphic products were really just much more prevalent there in a way we hadn't experienced in the U.S. or, or Western Europe. Was there any existing research or were you carving a completely new path here? So there was certainly research showing cultural patterns in consumer behavior and cultural differences. So for example, if you use appeals that refer to social harmony or advertising that hints that a product adheres to social norms, that was seen as being more positive in collectivistic or East Asian countries than it would be in individualistic countries where it's much more important for you to be unique and exert your uh, separatedness from other people as opposed to showing how you, you know, contribute to social cohesion. So that's been looked at certainly before. I think what was unique about our paper was extending those cultural differences to how people might react to anthropomorphic products. Because anecdotally, there's been, I wouldn't say research, but anecdotally, there, there are certainly indications that cross-cultural differences exist in terms of the prevalence of anthropomorphic products in the two different regions of the world. But no research, I think, had looked at it explicitly. Well, and when we're talking about collectivist culture, and you then said East Asian culture, how stable is collectivist culture? Actually, I suppose I should back up and just to make sure everybody, again, is marching along as they're listening, define collectivist culture. Sure. So, so the, the, the big caveat before I discuss this is that we discuss collectivism and individualism as this dichotomy, but there's, there's really a, a, a span of different, of different behaviors and, and attitudes that go along with these dispositions. But in general, individualistic cultures such as those found in North America and Western Europe 
tend to conceptualize the self as being distinct from other people. Um, we tend to focus on what makes us unique and, and different than other people and, and are actually encouraged to do so in, mm -hmm. in schooling and in media and in general culture. Whereas in collectivistic cu cultures, such as those found um, in East Asian countries, one defines themselves typically more in terms of their relationships with other people and tend to prioritize social relationships and group harmony and think about how they're connected to others much more. So needless to say, it's not the case that one of these is right and one of these is wrong. No, it's just they're different. That, you know, <laughs> they're right. just different. And, and also, I should also, uh, the other caveat is we obviously don't live in an East versus West world, but, but, but I'm just giving examples of countries that tend to display higher versus lower, le low, lower levels of. Right. At a macro level, this is where we are. I'm, I'm curious if it's a relatively stable aspect of culture as, as media, especially social media is cross-cultural and as Netflix is programming stuff from other places and you have influences, more cross-cultural influences rather than just, I mean, from a, a person in the United States, we exported a lot of media previously. We're, we're importing more than we used to. And certainly there's more cross-pollination experienced by Americans than perhaps in the past. Is it stable or is it subject to change? I think everything is subject to, to, to change when you step far back enough, but we still do see differences, even in some studies that we ran were with undergraduate students in Singapore, for example, versus in the U.S., versus in the U.K. You were dealing um, with, yeah, you were dealing with Gen Z right there. Often, oftentimes we were dealing okay. with Gen Z and we would still see these uh, statistical differences in people's tendency to exhibit collectivistic versus individualistic traits. That isn't to say that there isn't heterogeneity within certain populations. Like even within the U.S., we, we ran a study with Caucasian versus Asian Americans and found those differences. And so that's within a market. But presumably, previous research has suggested that if you grow up in a household that prioritizes collectivistic values, then that's also likely to inform the way you view the world and the way you view yourself. That's so interesting. So collectivist, interdependent consumers versus independent consumers, they also purchase differently, right? It's not just how they engage. What is going on there? It's not just that they're appealing to society through marketing. They they also, and the anthropomorphic product, you had some theories around what you, so you had some hypotheses based upon some purchasing behaviors, right? Yes. So we noticed, well, we had looked, some of our early evidence or, or, or piece of data in this work came from secondary data where we looked at top selling consumer product goods in uh, a, a number of East Asian countries and a number of quote unquote Western countries. Mm -hmm. um, the former being highly collectivistic and the latter being highly individualistic. And basically we had research assistants code those products for the for the, for the presence of anthropomorphic traits. So a face on the packaging or a name that hinted at anthropomorphism, like similar to the Game Boy versus right. Walkman right. example I shared earlier. And we found that it was much more prevalent to have consumer product goods that were anthropomorphic in East Asian collectivistic countries than it was in individualistic slash Western countries. So that sort of inspired us to test if those market differences are there, is that because marketers and brand managers intuitively know that those markets are, are or consumers in those markets are responding more positively 
to anthropomorphic traits. And so that inspired us to sort of test whether people who hold collectivistic traits or beliefs respond more positively to anthropomorphic products than people who don't. And the reason we thought that this might be the case is because if you are collectivistic, you're more likely to value communal as opposed to solitary experiences, including consumption experiences. And so you should, in theory, at least reap greater rewards from um, consuming or interacting with an entity that has anthropomorphic traits than somebody from an individualistic country would. So that it would actually fulfill that it's actually fulfilling some social need that you're feeling due to cultural. Is that a fair? Yeah, that is fair. And, And that might sound surprising, but there is a lot of research that suggests that anthropomorphic products can, in certain cases, act as kind of a surrogate for interpersonal interactions. So for example, people who feel lonely are more likely to anthropomorphize products and are more likely to prefer anthropomorphic products over non-anthropomorphic products. So so it is the case we've seen in different paradigms that they can oftentimes act as sort of a, I wouldn't say exact or perfect surrogate for, for a real person. But if you've seen, for example, the movie Cast Away with Tom Hanks, how he... Wilson, the, the volleyball, right? Yes. So he, okay. <laughs> Exactly. He adds a face to this volleyball. And really, when he loses the volleyball at some point, it's really as if he's lost a very close friend and companion. Um, And that might be a bit of an extreme illustration, but we certainly see this um, happen in the marketplace, maybe just at a bit of a more uh, subtle level. So interesting. So how did you test your hypothesis? So aside from the secondary data that showed that anthropomorphic traits were more readily present in Eastern countries than it was in Western countries. We really wanted to to test our hypothesis in a number of ways. So one way we tested this was cross-culturally, which is maybe the the most obvious way way to test this, was we ran a study using Meta's advertising platform. And we ran this study in both South Korea and the UK. Uh, South Korea represents a collectivistic country, whereas the UK represents an individualistic country. But importantly, these these countries are similar on other dimensions, including internet savviness, et cetera. And we tested two types of ads, an ad for a water bottle that was just a plain water bottle versus a water bottle that was anthropomorphic. And what we found was that when we ran these ads in South Korea, the anthropomorphic water bottle was clicked on significantly more than the non-anthropomorphic water bottle, whereas in the UK, there was no difference in terms of click-through rates across the two advertisements. So that was one, one study we ran. And then in our next study, we wanted to control for the effects of any marketplace. So one could have argued that, well, maybe it's just because there are there happened to be more anthropomorphic products in South Korea than in the UK, and that's what had driven people's preferences. So to control for that, we wanted to look for differing levels of collectivism within one one culture. So in our second study, we were interested in keeping all of the data coming from one country, the US, but we looked at two different types of consumers, Asian Americans and Caucasian Americans. And this is because previous research suggests that Asian Americans, even when they're born and raised in the US, tend to exhibit high levels of collectivism because 
um, of, of values that they've gotten from their parents and, and their upbringing. And so what we found in that study is that Asian Americans preferred products that were positioned in an anthropomorphic way as opposed to products that were not positioned in an anthropomorphic way. But Caucasian Americans actually exhibited the reverse pattern. They preferred the non-anthropomorphic to the anthropomorphic products, which is really interesting because you're seeing a complete reversal just depending on one's essentially essentially one's ethnicity and, and, and cultural upbringing, even within the same marketplace, in this case, the U.S., well, and that's interesting because there are Caucasian groups which are more collectivist than others. You could say Jewish Americans have a strong sense of collective uh, in the United States and um, Hispanic Americans as well. And and as an Italian American, I know that that was a big part of, of my family. And so it's interesting that even, even given that, it's not as collectivist. And I wonder how durable, how fresh is the immigration pattern? How Again, that sort of goes to the durable question asked earlier. How many generations? How much culture is your family versus your, your friends in the larger society? Yeah, no, and I and I love that comment because it's such a great segue actually to, to to the third study we ran because you're right. We used culture in study one and in study two, we used ethnicity as kind of a proxy for, for collectivistic thought. But we really did want to drill down into this this trait to see if that was really what's driving the differences. And so we ran a study where we measured on on, on a psychological scale people's trait level of collectivism. So regardless of what cultural, what culture or ethnicity they were, we, we measured how much they exhibit this collectivistic trait. And we found the same pattern emerge where people who rated high in collectivism showed a preference for anthropomorphic products, but that preference was not existent for people low in collectivism. Uh, and so I think that is, is an important point to acknowledge because there is heterogeneity in all of these different cultures. The last thing we'd want to do is stereotype and say like everybody from an Asian country or all Asian Americans think a certain way, but those are stable differences that we see across culture which can explain uh, differences we see in data. But really, there are individual level differences in these dimensions within and, and across culture. Well, and I also thought it was really interesting, the business about the negative. Did you find it, when you were doing it on the personal collectivist measure, were the more individualistic consumers, were they negative? Because again, as a marketer, you're thinking, I have a target audience and I want to appeal to them. I don't want to turn people off though. Is there a risk that I'm turning people off or should I have different messages in the marketplace when I'm segmenting and putting things out, especially when you can target through, let's say, a meta or something like that? Yeah, no, I, I, I think so. We didn't always find that this was the case, but there were several occasions in which we found that individualistic consumers showed a preference for the non-anthropomorphic over the anthropomorphic, which would suggest that if you're morphizing products, those consumers will like them less than if you did not do so, right? And so that that's a, that's a pretty big implication for, for marketers. In terms of why that's the case, we don't have empirical evidence for this, but based on some of the open-ended responses, we have a few ideas. It 
it does seem that in many cases, individualistic consumers find anthropomorphic products to be a bit childlike, mm. whereas that wasn't the case for the collectivistic consumers. Other research also suggests that when you anthropomorphize things, it, it kind of allows that, that entity to take credit for things. And if you're a very independent individualistic consumer, you may want to, to feel like all the choices you make are your own decisions and you're consuming in an independent way without any social influence, etc., which could also suggest that you would prefer non-anthropomorphic products to, to anthropomorphic ones. So again, we don't have hard data to suggest what's going on there, but it certainly was the case that we found a reversal oftentimes in, in with the individualistic or non-collectivistic consumer. Well, and so this, so here's a question then. M&M's candy, it's a U.S. candy. They've been using these anthropomorphic made into people candy in the U.S. and in the U.K. Should they move away from that? Would they be more successful if they moved away from it? Do you think? I mean, just given this kind of data, if you were to place a bet, obviously you're not consulting for M&Ms and this is not what this is, but it's just, it's a very, it's a product, which is an American product in an American marketplace. So what would you say? So I would say that in our set of studies, most of the manipulations we looked at were adding anthropomorphic visual or verbal anthropomorphic traits to the product itself, as opposed to brand anthropomorphism. I think brand anthropomorphism is much more subtle. So I think the M&M characters is a great example of a very long running communications campaign, even though in very recent and in very recent right, times, well, they've run into some, some <laughs> controversy, a little bit of surprising controversy, but I guess can't escape controversy these days. And um, so as a communications tool to get people to have fond feelings towards the brand, I think it works really well and, it, and, and okay. it has worked really well across cultures. But I think that's a little bit different than having people anthropomorph- anthropomorphize the product itself. So I think very few people will like see an M&M in at least in Western markets or see a piece of candy that actually has the face on it while you're eating it, even though the branding might, might hint okay. towards Okay, right. So... Okay. That's interesting. So it's sort of the product itself really has that face on it. I'm buying my makeup and it's got a face on it. That's what we're talking about. Now you did, by looking in the States, you did control for the idea of exposure to products is, do you think it's reinforced by exposure to products? I guess I'm still, I'm, I, it seems really interesting. The difference, the perception of child and, and let's say cute that, that, that doesn't happen in other places, maybe because you're used to seeing makeup with a face on it or something, but you're saying that's not, not what's going on. So I think it's impossible for exposure to not play, uh, not play a role. Certainly we know that familiarity plays a role in decisions. And in general, we respond more positively to things that are familiar Mm -hmm. um, in general. So to the extent that you're in a Western marketplace and you only see faces on products that are for little kids, then yeah, you are more likely to hold this association that if it has kind of a face or or lifelike or human-like characteristics on the product, then that's something that's childlike. or or for kids. Whereas if you're in a marketplace 
where you see that readily on all types of products, um, you're, you're more likely to not hold that association. And in, 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 I mean, I could remember um, the first time I visited Japan being surprised that even, even the construction cones had little winky eyes and a smile on it, you know, <laughs> you know not, not just consumer products, but really like it was just everywhere. And so if that's normalized, then yes, I think you're less likely to, to, to have the, the, the negative association, certainly. But I think the question is, well, why did these differences materialize to begin with? And I mean, we look at collectivism as a trait, but there's also lots of other potential explanations and even kind of historical explanations. So some people have said in certain East Asian countries, the really quick industrialization has kind of left some people a a little jaded and kind of just like the idea of having these kind of cute smiley products all around them to help compensate for that. There's also some people, some research has also suggested that based on Shinto beliefs that sort of all objects kind of have an essence or a soul that's kind of permeated society and makes it more readily acceptable that you would kind of humanize or treat a non-human or non-living object as if it did have an essence or a being. So I think there are lots of cultural dimensions or, or reasons that could possibly be in play for for why the marketplace differences exist. And, and I definitely think those do play a role, but we were, but we did see that in our studies, even controlling for marketplace differences, you still saw differences in preferences for anthropomorphism based on people's trait collectivism. That's, I think that's just so interesting. So if I'm a marketer, and I'm looking at a global marketplace, how should I use this information in my thinking? How should I use it and how I approach what I'm doing? So I, I think the, the, the most obvious way to, to use it would be marketing products in a different way in different cultures. If you were to just do that in broad strokes, if you are a brand manager who is making these country level decisions, then it might be best to use anthropomorphic communications or anthropomorphic packaging in Eastern countries, whereas that is probably not the case in Western countries. However, today, given how we're able to segment and target through digital means in particular, but not only through digital means, you can also target subcultures who may exhibit higher or lower levels of collectivism. You can also psychographically target. And so if you're targeting a market or a consumer that might have a higher need for collectivistic consumption, whether it be because they're highly collectivistic or because they're lonely or even maybe at that very moment feeling like they lack a companionship or feel lonely, then anthropomorphism is likely to be um, a good good idea or anthropomorphic communications, anthropomorphic packaging, etc. Whereas that's not necessarily going to be the case in other instances. And so I think we see lots of different ways. I recently saw even... Um, I think it was Chanel that had this ad where it was like the oil, it was a a body oil describing itself in the first person. Like I am this oil that does, I can't remember it's describing itself, but it's very, very much using a first person tone of voice. Oh, here, I have the quote here. I am not just an oil. I will make you radiate, right? It's like a very anthropomorphic, uh, anthropomorphic statement. And that type of comms doesn't have to be, 
mainstream that could certainly be targeted comms that's only going to certain markets or certain audiences. And so to keep kind of collectivistic thought in mind when making those targeting decisions and those those communications decisions. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and taking us through the information. I, I found it so interesting. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.